0: you'll take your Bibles and turn to Exodus chapter 8, Exodus 8, we're going to read 1 through 19 this morning. Last Sunday we we looked at at what the text calls the first blow from God's hand. The Lord Himself struck the, the Nile River and turned it into blood. And we, and we saw that the Egyptians worshipped the Nile and several gods associated with the Nile. And then they bathed their idols in the blood of the Nile, and it was really a summons for you and me to likewise bathe our false gods in, in the true blood of Jesus Christ and have them washed and cleansed from us. We, we repent of them, we lay them aside, and really that is part of how we should look at all of the other plagues. And so this morning, we're going to study the second and third signs that God gave to Pharaoh. Again, this is the Lord confronting the idols of the Egyptians and calling you and I to say, where do I see these idols in my own heart? Exodus chapter 8, beginning at verse 1, this is God's word. Then the Lord said to Moses, go into Pharaoh and say to him, thus says the Lord, let my people go that they may serve me. But if you refuse to let them go, behold, I will plague all your country with frogs. The Nile shall swarm with frogs that shall come up into your house and into your bedroom and on your bed and into your houses of your servants and your people and into your ovens and your kneading bowls. The frogs shall come up on you and on your people and on all your servants." And the Lord said to Moses, say to Aaron, stretch out your hand with your staff over the rivers, over the canals, over the pools, and make frogs come up from the land of Egypt. So Aaron stretched out his hand over the waters of Egypt, and the frogs came up and covered the land of Egypt. But the magicians did the same by their secret arts and made frogs come up on the land of Egypt." Then Pharaoh called Moses and Aaron and said, Plead with the Lord to take away the frogs from me and from my people, and I will let the people go to sacrifice to the Lord. Moses said to Pharaoh, Be pleased to command me when I am to plead for you and for your servants and for your people, that the frogs be cut off from you and your houses and be left only in the Nile. And Pharaoh said, Tomorrow. Moses said, be it as you say, say, so that you may know that there is no one like the Lord our God. The frogs shall go away from you and your houses and your servants and your people. They shall be left only in the Nile. So Moses and Aaron went out from Pharaoh and Moses cried to the Lord about the frogs as he had agreed with Pharaoh. And the Lord did according to the word of Moses. The frogs died out in the houses and the courtyards and the fields. And they gathered them together in heaps, and the land stank. And when Pharaoh saw that there was a respite, he hardened his heart and would not listen to them as the Lord had said. Then the Lord said to Moses, Say to Aaron, stretch out your staff and strike the dust of the earth so that it may become gnats in all the land of Egypt. And they did so. Aaron stretched out his hand and his staff with his staff and struck the dust of the earth And there were gnats on man and beast. All the dust of the earth became gnats in all the land of Egypt. The magicians tried by their secret arts to produce gnats, but they could not. So there were gnats on man and beast. Then the magicians said to Pharaoh, this is the finger of God. But Pharaoh's heart was hardened, and he would not listen to them as the Lord had said. This is God's word. Let's pray for his help. Oh, Father, we ask now for the ministry of Your Holy Spirit, that You might teach us and give us ears to hear what Your Spirit says to Your people. More than that, we pray that You would be willing to use an ordinary sinful crooked stick once again to point the narrow way to Christ Jesus, that unlike Pharaoh, we might find life through Him, in whose name we pray, amen. as we examine the plagues that the Lord used to strike the people of Egypt, we, we use this rubric to think through what's going on. Each plague really is a precise strike from the hand of God. It's a pointed attack on one of the false gods that the Egyptians worshipped. Blood in the Nile. It's not a random choice. God placed his finger on the Nile gods, gods named Happy and New and Osiris. And these were false gods that that the Egyptians worshipped as a source of life and existence. And so God strikes the Nile and he makes his point very clear. Your false gods are impotent. I'm the only source of life. And so then with the next nine plagues, he does exactly the same thing. First, he exposes how hopeless it is to worship false gods. And then secondly, how powerful and sovereign is the one true God? All of this is done in answer to Pharaoh's original question. Do you remember? Back in chapter 5, who's the Lord that I should obey his voice and let Israel go? Pharaoh's heart is hard towards the Lord because of his own sin. But here's a lesson for you and me. In our study last week, we saw that every plague follows this twofold purpose. Chapter 7, verse 16, that the Hebrew people may be free to serve God. These plagues are here so that you might see and remember that you're free to serve the Lord through Jesus Christ. Chapter 7, verse 17. The second reason that Pharaoh and the Egyptians will know that Yahweh is God. Pharaoh is, in that sense, a warning. He is the opposite of who you are as Christians. In Christ, your heart is meant to be tender toward God's Word. Through Christ, God has made Himself manifest and known to you so that you really are freed to worship and serve the Lord without the the infringement of these silly idols. And so we take the plagues through these, these lenses. And as God puts His finger on the gods of Egypt, we must ask Him to show us the places of our own hearts where we treasure gods that are similar, serve these same false gods as idols of our hearts. And when the Lord places His finger on an idol in your heart, you say, Father, I want to repent. Idolatry isn't taking a bad thing and trying to worship it. It's twisting what God gives as a gift and deifying it, something that was given for our delight and our enjoyment, we give it a place of ultimate position and power, assigning it honor that it can never carry. Idolatry is really just the worship of God's good gifts in the wrong place. And what you find is what they found here: that idols are incapable of giving you any lasting comfort. They they, they might try to reign over you, but they will always leave you longing. And so, chapter 8 says that God proves himself the only source of comfort and Lord of every land. Our passage breaks down into three parts this morning deep frogs, shallow faith, pointed finger. I thought I was funny when I said deep frogs at my desk this week. That's clever. Let's start with deep frogs. It was seven days since the Nile had turned to blood. And yet, you get the sense that over the nation of Egypt, the blood of the Nile did nothing to phase the king. Which is why here the plague comes right at Pharaoh with something that's graphic and overwhelming. And so, chapter 8 says that Moses, you go in, you go in and talk to Pharaoh because that's what I'm going to do. In other words, I'm going to take the plague right upon him. You go and tell him, you let my people go, that they may serve me. But if you refuse to let them go, look, I will plague your whole country with frogs. Frogs. To us, it seems entirely odd. It's a ridiculous choice, maybe. Until you understand the context of Egyptian worship. Last week, I introduced you to a god of the Nile who is called Nu or Num. Sometimes you see him spelled like K H N U M. Well, he was the god that supposedly brought forth life for people from the Nile River. He was also the god who created human life. And scholars tell us that in Egyptian mythology, Num would fashion human bodies like on a potter's wheel. And then he would give those human bodies to his lovely bride, whose name was Heket. Heket is pictured with a frog's head and a woman's body. Sometimes she's pictured with a frog's body too, but he would give the, the body to Heket, and she would breathe life into the lungs of the human body. And so the, the frog goddess Heket is thought to, to be one who possesses power to give life, which is why she's used and thought of as a goddess of fertility to the Egyptians. And so Egyptians trusted Heket for a couple of things. They worshipped her first because she supposedly protected the crocodiles, which is the natural predator of frogs in the Nile. And if, you, if, if she keeps the crocodiles in check, then they will keep the frog population in check. It's incredibly embarrassing that frogs were sacred in Egypt Embarrassing because you can't kill them because they belong to Heket. That's her territory. Sure does make Heket look inept when the god of your slave population says, You like frogs? I'll give you some frogs. So much so that you will learn to hate them. Well, that's not all. People also worshiped Heket as the goddess who helped women in childbirth. They sought Heket's help when they were having babies. They sought her to hinder them from having babies. Women sought Heket and her comfort when they lost a baby in childbirth. It was their hope that this frog goddess would meet them in the midst of sorrow and pain and give them peace. It was Heket that the midwives said, cry out to her as as you're in pain giving birth to this baby. Ask Heket to spare your life and to spare the life of the child. All this explains why she was the goddess of the midwives in Egypt. In their eyes, this is a a frog goddess who is compassionate uh, in all the pains and sorrows that are associated with birth and life remember, don't you, that it was Pharaoh who started this fight. It was Pharaoh who oppressed God's people. It was Pharaoh who issued the order to have all the Hebrew baby boys thrown into the Nile River. Now, that was 80 years earlier. This is a different Pharaoh. But the Egyptians still worship the exact same gods. Which is why God's first two blows against the Egyptian gods are an answer to the the wickedness that began this book. A strike against the Nile River gods. A strike against the goddess who supposedly governs birth. God says, you are the ones who turned the Nile to blood first. You're the ones who treated human life like it was garbage. You want blood in the Nile? I'll give you blood in the Nile. You ask the Hebrew midwives to kill God's people. I'll make sure that your midwives on their very seat understand that their goddess is powerless. That's why this image is so overwhelming. Look at verse 3. The Nile shall swarm with frogs that shall come up into your house and into your bedroom and on your bed and into your houses of your servants and your people and into your ovens and your kneading bowls. The frogs shall come up on you and on your people and on all your servants. Plague one, Pharaoh was completely unfazed. He just turned. He went into his house. Somebody's responsible for getting him water, and it's not him, so he never really took it to heart. That won't happen this time. In fact, Pharaoh, when you lie down to sleep, the frogs will be in your bed croaking under your pillow They will hop on your face and they will climb up your legs. You go to get something to eat, there will be a frog in your bowl. You go to bake bread. You have servants that do that. When they go to grab the mixing bowl and they start turning dough, whoop, there's frogs. You throw the frog out and then you you finally get the dough mixed. When they arrive at the oven, there's already frogs there waiting to see them which is why the word all is repeated over and over again. Hebrew scholars point out that there's a really strange use of the singular in this passage so that you are to get the sense that it is one giant frog with his belly sitting over the top of the nation of Egypt. And the Egyptians are crushed under his weight. And many of you have faces that are going like this. And you should, because that's the picture. That's precisely what the Lord was doing. As frogs are all over the place, God puts his finger on their goddess, and he declares, this goddess is inept. I don't think anybody worships Hecate by name anymore. But I do wonder if we're still not tempted to worship the very things that she represents. The Egyptians desperately wanted to control childbirth. And the edict from 80 years earlier tells you that this is a a culture of death. Do you live in a culture of death? Is your culture any less interested in gaining control over childbirth? Your enemy Satan today is way too crafty to give you a silly frog goddess. No, you're Americans. You're too sophisticated for that. And so he has renamed the frog goddess. Planned Parenthood. The ability to control the birth and life by any means necessary. Isn't the Frost's promise of an abortion the capacity to control childbirth, to make sure that another life doesn't come and inconvenience your life? You don't have to fall to the lies of Planned Parenthood, though, to be tempted by this frog goddess. Even among Christian people, you, you notice that the same idolatry is present today, not because of what the Bible says about children, but because you and I are swimming in an ocean of lies about children. The world says children are a hassle, that they are expensive and they are exhausting and they're a giant drag on your freedom. Your world tells you that if you start to have kids, then your life is over. And so children are pitted against your other worldly idols. Success, freedom, fun, finances. As if having children is more costly than not. As if you will lose more than you could possibly gain. And that culture will tell you that if you have babies, don't have more than one or two. And the Bible says, be fruitful and multiply. It tells Christian parents that their children are in fact a blessing. They are a heritage from the Lord. What if you and I thought about children in the same way that we think about world missions How many thousands of dollars would you be willing to give away to missions to make a disciple of Christ in a foreign country? So before you start worrying about the high cost of raising children or the sacrifice that it takes, perhaps it's best to begin viewing our children through the context of God's world mission as if it were in fact a kingdom investment. As one small part of what the Lord may be doing in the land underneath your feet? What if you invested in missions right here in your own house? Would your perspective be different? If you saw them not as, as mouths to feed, or, or college educations to pay for, or errands to run, or noses to wipe, but as little souls to be discipled in Christ. As a pastor, sometimes people ask me about birth control, and I would say, first, you should talk to a Christian doctor who holds a biblical view of life and reproduction. You cannot find birth control forbidden in the Bible, but when you, when you consider what the Bible says, and it doesn't directly address it, but it is helpful to, to hear the, the heart of God towards life. And then you say, Father, would you help us with wisdom and care by the help of your Spirit through the Bible's teaching? I I see the fifth commandment, you shall not murder. I see Genesis 1, 28, be fruitful and multiply, fill the earth. I see Psalm 127, children are a blessing, a heritage from the Lord. But certainly all of that tells you that birth control should not be used if it possesses an abortive component that destroys life after conception. But married couples really can conclude that safe forms of birth control can be used for a season. But they are never used in a high-handed permanent defiance against God's command to be fruitful and multiply. And moreover, if children are a blessing and a heritage, as the Psalm says, Birth control would always be used with open hands, believing that it is God who chooses to give you what He will give you in His timing. It's not just hindering of birth, though, that we idolize. It's possible, isn't it, for people to become consumed with giving birth. Some people might find their identity and their capacity to give birth. Others might hope might lose hope and grieve endlessly if the Lord was to take a baby from their arms. We don't want to worship a God that can't comfort us. We worship Yahweh who says, if I choose to take life from your arms, you look in my face and believe me. That I am not finished with the long story that I'm writing. Egyptian women cried out to this frog goddess for comfort. In the most painful longings of their hearts. And what they found in plague number two is what every person who ever worships her likeness finds. And that is, as one pastor said, Heket is powerless to comfort her worshipers. That's Yahweh's point. In the midst of the deep valleys of sorrow and the long uh, moments of tears and pain, God says, I'm the only God who can and will comfort my worshipers. Everywhere else you turn, everything else you would deify turns out to be nothing more than a croaking frog. In those moments where your heart hurts the most, do not go looking for a woman who looks like a frog. Go looking for a God who looks like a man whose image is found in the Lord Jesus Christ, the Son of God, because in Him, God proves Himself the only source of comfort and the Lord of every land. Deep frogs. Now let's look at shallow faith. Verse 7 is the third time that the court magicians... Try to do, at least in appearance, the same signs that Moses and Aaron did. And they're always incapable of doing the real sign. I mean, the real wonder would be to push back the plague that God had brought on the Egyptians. They can't do that, and so they produce more frogs. You can tell from Pharaoh's response, this time he's not so impressed. So he does what would have otherwise been unthinkable. He goes back to Moses and Aaron, verse 8, "Plead with the Lord to take away the frogs from me and from my people, and I will let the people of Israel I will let the people go to sacrifice to the Lord." Sounds like a big change. Especially when you consider Pharaoh's earlier comment, "Who's the Lord?" that I should obey his voice, that I should let Israel go. And suddenly he goes from a place of pride to a place of humility, and he's forced to acknowledge that this plague is from Yahweh. This is not a natural disaster. Suddenly, where he could be ignored before, the God of the Hebrews cannot be ignored in this plague. More than that, it almost seems as though Pharaoh's ready to obey his voice. But this is shallow faith. From start to finish, this is going to be about God's glory. Which is why Moses presents a very precise manner to make it clear that only God can remove the plague from Pharaoh. Look at verse 9. Moses said to Pharaoh, be pleased to command me when I am to plead for you and your servants and your people. And the frogs will be cut off from you and your houses and be left only in the Nile. And Pharaoh said, tomorrow Moses said, be, as it as you, be it as you say, so that you may know that there is no one like the Lord our God. The frogs shall go away from you and your houses and your servants and your people. They will be only left in the Nile. And all this is to prove what com- one commentator called Yahweh's incomparable power and control over the situation. Only God can look at His enemy and say, why don't you tell me when you want them to be gone? Only God could keep the frogs in the boundaries of the Nile River, instantly putting them back and then killing everyone that is on the land. It was always a showdown. It was a showdown between the one true God and the false gods of Egypt. What was the purpose? Look at verse 10. You may know that there is no one like the Lord our God. And then God did it. As quickly as the frogs appeared, they were dead all over the land, all over the land the frogs were dead. And you and I are left with the image of frogs, piles and piles of rotting frog cadavers. And this is now the second time that we are told that the land stank. Why do we keep hearing that word? The land stank. Because when Moses and Aaron came and told the Hebrew people God's plan of deliverance, you remember initially they believed? But as soon as Pharaoh turned up the heat, he said, work harder. There's no straw for your bricks. It was then that the foreman came and began to complain to Moses. You've made us stink in the sight of Pharaoh and his servants. God has turned the table on their fears. Yes, there is an aroma in Egypt. But this is an aroma of judgment. This is the odor of sin's consequences. This stubborn Egyptian king and his dead idols are now rotting in the air. That's what makes the land stink. And so with all of this odor wafting in the air, this is the moment for Pharaoh to make good on his promise. If there was ever going to be genuine faith in God, here it is. Verse 15. But when Pharaoh saw that there was respite, he hardened his heart and would not listen to them as the Lord had said. The word respite in the original language really means room. It means space. Pharaoh wanted a little breathing room, a little space. And one pastor said as soon as he had enough space to get his life back on his own terms, he had no use for God. Whatever panic it was that overtook him, whatever need for someone to pray for him, whatever cry for relief he had, once it was gone, there really was no genuine repentance. And so here's a warning Pharaoh hated the frogs. In fact, he hated the frogs. He was sick and tired of being overrun by frogs, but the frogs were really just the consequence. Of his sin. Pharaoh never really hated his sin. He just hated the consequence. What a warning that is to us. How many of you hate the consequences of your sin? But like Pharaoh, there may be something in you that, that, that is refusing to get rid of the sin itself. If this was genuine faith, he wouldn't have called Moses and Aaron and asked them to pray for him. He would have fallen on his face. Oh, God, I repent. I'm so sorry that I am so stubborn. I hate my pride. I turn from it. Pharaoh's shallow. He asks someone else to do the praying. He wants breathing room. God, take away the consequences. Get rid of my frog problem, and I'll follow you. Shallow faith. Shallow faith always tries to bargain with God. God, give me a spouse, and then I'll be a better man. Take away my pornography problem, and I'll never go back to it. Or the girl might say, God, this guy isn't very good for me. If if you'll just take him out of of my life, I won't choose a guy like that again. God, I've got a lot of friends who kind of lead me astray. If you'd help me kind of separate from them, their bad influences, I promise that I'll stop partying. Or whatever your sin consequence might be. And here you hear the voice of Pharaoh from the grave. He says, the frogs were actually a blessed warning to me. I should have hated my sin more than I hated the frogs. Moreover, God doesn't make bargains. Breathing room was more dangerous than the frogs. Can you hear the warning? Getting out from under sin's consequences is what our hearts often want to do. The Lord says sometimes that consequence is the very best thing for you. It's not respite you need. It's not room to breathe. It's repentance and faith. Cry out to God for forgiveness. Before you, cry out to God for relief. And when you see evidence of sin's consequence, choose first to hate the sin and come running to the Savior, Jesus Christ. God proves himself the only source of comfort and the Lord of every land. Deep frogs, shallow faith, we're going to close with a pointed finger. Now, as we began the study on plagues, we saw every time this is the finger of God on the specific idols of Egypt. And so it's important that we ask ourselves, what idols of my own heart are being exposed? Where has the Lord placed his finger? A king would not let the the people of Israel go, But he hardened his heart. And so the Lord this time strikes with no warning. It is the third plague. With Yahweh's instruction, Aaron goes and he strikes the dust of the earth, and the dust becomes gnats in Egypt. The King James Version translates this as lice. The NIV or ESV use the word gnats. Verse 17 and 18 tell us that whatever they were, they weren't just flying around. These were actually on man and beast. So maybe they were lice, maybe they were mosquitoes. Whatever they were, the numbers were deliberately overwhelming. Philip Reichen says the third plague may have been intended to humiliate the earth god Geb. By turning the dust into bugs, God was claiming authority over even the very soil of Egypt and over the god of the ground. And so the creator God who brought forth man from the dust, the ground, suddenly brings chaos from that same dust. And so if Yahweh has his finger on Geb, he also has his finger on Pharaoh, who himself thought that he was a god The Egyptians worshipped Pharaoh as a god because they thought that Pharaoh was the one who caused there to be harmony and stability and equilibrium in the whole cosmos. And so when the God of creation begins to dismantle his creation and send it into chaos, Pharaoh is over here exposed as powerless. It's time the magicians tried, but they can't... Imitate the plague. From here forward, when Pharaoh hardens his heart, he won't have the magicians as an excuse to ignore the power of God. Take a look at verse 19. Then the magicians said to Pharaoh, This is the finger of God. But Pharaoh's heart was hardened, and he would not listen to them as the Lord had said. Your God placed his finger on the idol of the ground, on the land, the territory that the Egyptians worshipped. And then he placed his finger on Pharaoh, the one who thought that he controlled the stability of the universe. What is God's message to you? First, there is no land. There is no territory in your own heart where the Lord does not have the right to place his finger where he doesn't have the right to disrupt the soil and say, child, stop trusting in your own power, in your own capacity to control. Instead, look up from the ground into my face. Secondly, How many of us live as though we are the ones who bring equilibrium and control and harmony to our own world? As if I am the God of control. How many of us trust in ourselves for that balance of life? Maybe it's your intelligence or your charisma or your good looks or your position. Very clearly, God says, you can't stabilize your world because you're not God. I've only given that place to my son. That's the reason we read Colossians 1. All things were created through Jesus and for Jesus, and he is before all things, and in Jesus all things hold together. That's why the Bible says, in Christ God proves himself the only source of comfort and the Lord of every land. Let's pray. Oh, Father, we thank you for your word. We pray that you would rest our souls beneath it, cause your spirit to apply it to our hearts, and teach us to walk with you more faithfully. In Jesus' name we pray. Amen.